Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to A Musical Journey Like No Other, giving you an in-depth, invigorating, and exclusive look at the newest Smashing Pumpkins concept album, Autumn. This is 33 with William Patrick Corgan, and this is the 13th step, lucky number 13, on this interstellar musical expedition. If it's your first time listening to 33, welcome. If you've been with us since the very beginning, thanks for being fans, and thanks for tuning in. On this episode, like every episode of 33, we're going to have a world premiere of a song from the album Autumn. This time, the song is titled Empire's... As always, we're going to break down the story, the lyrics, the melody of this song with Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan. We're also going to listen to some classic tracks from the Billy Corgan catalog on this podcast. On this episode, we're listening to and analyzing One and All. This is the second single from the Smashing Pumpkins' 10th album, Monuments to an Elegy. The song features Tommy Lee on drums and our guest on today's episode, Jeff Schroeder on guitars. Schroeder is the second longest serving member of the Smashing Pumpkins. We're going to talk to him about improving as musicians, the spiritual journey of being in the band, and what it's really like to be a part of the Smashing Pumpkins. Joining us on this journey is my friend and broadcast partner, Kyle Davis. Hey, everybody. I hope you know this by now, but make sure you use the hashtag WPC33 spelled out in social media. Let that conversation continue. We want to hear from you and all the other things that are going on in the world. Share with us. Be a part of this. Make it grow. 
Obviously, the huge news still in the world. I'm still getting emails, texts, everything about it. March 4th, Mexico City. World is a vampire. I can't wait to be a part of that. And I hope to get to hang out with our guest today while I'm there, Jeff Schroeder. Uh, Billy, I've just got to ask, what's going on? You know, obviously you're recording. I was just told you're still recovering. We all got sick in the last month. Life is what it is. We we progress. We grow. We build. We get stronger. What's life like for you right now? Spoiler alert. Um, Jimmy Chamberlain and I are back in the studio starting work on a new Smashing Pumpkins album, the album that will follow Autumn. Everybody we tell this to gives us the same look of like, you guys are absolutely insane. And by the way, shaking is, my head. isn't Christmas coming? My children are really mad at me. I've never experienced this before. My son is seven and my daughter is four. And they were literally chastising me. How can you be leaving before Christmas? We have to decorate the tree. And I was trying to explain them like, look, uh, we have a song in the charts. I got to get back in the studio. They had wanted nothing to do with this. Um, so my children are mad at me for the first time ever. Billy the Grinch. It's been said. <laughs> um, I'd make a good I mean, Grinch Christmas. if anybody's casting. But uh, here we are, Empires. I'm glad this day has come. I love this song. It's slated to be the next single. We shot a video. Also another spoiler with Kevin Kerslake, who famously did the Chair Rock video. So back in the saddle with the Smashing Pumpkins one more time. It was great to see Kevin as we shot the video on stage, I believe, in Phoenix. With our full stage setup and... There was stuff with drones and stuff, so it would be interesting. I think at one point, I almost got hit in the head by a flying drone. But let's talk about empires here. Unless Kyle, you're raising your hand. I usually have. You're very before swole. we got empires. Swole, so I'm I, sorry. I want, Thank you. I want Midlife to, crisis. You're swole, baby. I want to know what you have to say. Go ahead. Oh, you mentioned Christmas, and I just wanted to touch base on this because I had the question. I was just watching a very special Christmas episode of a Marvel thing, and all of a sudden, Smashing Pumpkins music pops up. What is that like to have a Christmas song that is now getting a resurgence in the the miasma that is society and pop culture? Nothing's more pleasurable than seeing a song that did okay in its time over time work its way up into, uh, I don't want to say it's quite reached classic status, but I know every Christmas now the song gets played very regularly. I've even heard the song Walking Through a Mall. That's a sublime experience. You, I, you know, you're walking and you hear like, very quietly. It's like, is that my song? Because um, usually it's a Beatles song. And it's like, oh my God, it's my song. No, it's it's been satisfying. You know, I'm very proud as a songwriter and I have great faith in my songs. So it doesn't surprise me when a song that I've written in the past sort of works its way back up over time. But we live in a very complicated world. Um, we recently got the Spotify numbers, the annual numbers. So that's just for Spotify. I think we were somewhere in the neighborhood of 389 million streams and almost 32 million unique uh, viewers. Uh, the numbers are up a lot from last year. So very proud because, again, this is the legacy of the band. Deep catalog, lots of great songs, uh, of which I was uh, proud to write many of them. And uh, and I know my bandmates are very proud as well because, look, we worked very, very hard in the 90s to do things that nobody in our generation thought was worth doing, extra songs, extra B-sides. And over time, that strategy has proved to be uh, prescient because as streaming services have come online, having a deep catalog past 80 or 90 songs and a few albums has really been a good thing. And you could see it in those streaming numbers. You know, sometimes I get forwarded social media things and people are like, oh my God, I just discovered this band. Oh my God, I found all these albums. What is all this? And I had those experiences with certain bands when I was young. So that's a very pleasurable experience. But let's, uh, let's pivot to the present. Enough bragging. I have a thump in my chest here pretty good. The song Empire. So if you remember last we saw, it was Ruby imported with Chinese pure consciousness in a field of sunflowers with 
Nighthawk setting up for live broadcasts in Osira and Ruby kind of connecting on a spiritual level. So Empires is the song that Ruby sings or delivers as a message to the X and I. So imagine if your pure consciousness, exiled into space, um, was able to come back and in a revenge play, say what it really wanted to say with no fear, no human reservation, pure, robotic, cold AI consciousness, and deliver a dark message to the heart of the X and I, and basically create a viral moment. And so this is Ruby with Shiny singing through her, delivers this message vis-a-vis a live broadcast like a Periscope or an Instagram Live, and they make it about three minutes into the broadcast before the government shuts down the link. But it's certainly enough, and the message gets out, that something in this very tightly wound narrative that the X and I and other government institutions in the place in the future have created where all narratives are controlled. Of course, we see that publicly paying out day by day with Elon Musk. Now, uh, I believe the EU is threatening to uh, go after Twitter for, quote-unquote, possible disinformation. There was talk this week that Apple was going to kick uh, Twitter off its app platform. Free speech is at the very center of American daily conversation, and I would argue in the West, everywhere, as we move into technocratic systems, which try to control and, oh, by the way, might just censor your speech, but it'll be for your own good. Don't forget. Um, So this is a prescient song. So imagine in the scenario of Autumn, Ruby singing uh, as Shiny's pure consciousness delivers a message which uh, is not so easily unwound. In essence, to use the old saying, the horse is now out of the barn. How important is it to be able to have that concept of being able to deliver something that is completely, truly unfiltered, especially when you're speaking, you know, from your true self and from deep down inside and what you truly believe and to be able to put it out there without having those reservations that a lot of people do have when they're trying to think about the the emotions that could be tied to those thoughts. I'm going to answer your question, but let me come at it from a slightly different angle. The argument about free speech, which is, you know, long lasting, and I don't think it will ever sort of solve the argument. It's a good argument, like in a, in a plutonic way, platonic. Plutonic would be the planet. Platonic would be the philosopher. In a platonic way, what is acceptable free speech? Of course, we always start, and I've referred to it previously, the classic example is you can't yell fire in a crowded theater because by yelling fire, you could create a dangerous situation. People could get stampeded. We're in a daily debate now over things like misinformation. We see now it's coming out and Musk has uh, threatened or alluded to the idea that he's going to release internal communications between former Twitter, HQ, and the White House. So has the White House been in collusion or in their argument maybe would be in coordination with social media companies about what is acceptable speech? Uh, Many people, of course, post-COVID complained that they couldn't even share their COVID experiences, that they were being censored just from sharing what happened to them with COVID or with certain treatments. So I'm back to the sort of philosophical end. I believe that this debate, and even if it's an eternal debate, this is a good debate to have. We should be figuring out where the goal line is of where is acceptable and non-acceptable speech. I don't have a problem with, let's call it um, hate speech in this particular way, and and I want to be careful how I say this. If you went to a a marginalized, historically marginalized group and you said, look, what are the terms that you're uncomfortable with being used that you would say are racist or negative terms for your people? Again, speaking sort of hypothetically, 
okay, we're going to remove those terms so nobody can type those terms into our search engine, stuff like that. I'm kind of generally okay with that. But it gets very, very blurry very fast now where, and you see it's part of the public debate, what's a good version of that and what's a bad version of that. And this is the way to get off it because it's an eternally, uh, you know, it's a rabbit hole that you can never come up out of. Who decides where that line is? In the past, generally speaking, it was the public that decided. People, of course, point to other times in American life where the people in charge were very comfortable using language and terminology that was very disparaging to particular groups of people. So the argument is it can't be a majority rule type of thing. But are we at a point, say, in American life where we need like a council, you know, an advisory group, in essence, some sort of public policy that says this is what we recommend and people can follow, not follow. But the behind the scenes collusion between big tech and government, that's a very queasy thing, because why wouldn't the people in power use that to weaponize their position and or demonize their opponents? So back to the narrative, and then we'll get off the segment, is it's interesting here, and this goes back to your question. In this particular instance, remember, the very real life shiny is floating off towards the sun. He has no idea what's happening. This is the pure consciousness now speaking through a robot. Could the argument be the robot doesn't have a right to speak? Could the argument be the AI doesn't have a right to speak? But in this particular instance, the robot speaks, the AI speaks vis-a-vis Shiny's pure consciousness, and what that entity or being says causes a big, big problem with people in control. Why? Well, that gets to the heart of the story as we go on. On that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, world premiere of Empires, and Jeff Schroeder joins the podcast as well. We'll be right back. Now available for pre-order at MadamZuzus.com. The autographed 4LP box set of Autumn, the new album by the Smashing Pumpkin. This 4LP colored vinyl pressing is limited to 1,333 units and will be machine numbered and autographed by the Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corrigan, Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, and Jeff Schroeder. The limited edition box set includes the three-act, 33-song rock opera that is Autumn and 10 exclusive unreleased songs over the course of five seven-inch singles that will not be available for streaming or found anywhere else. Go to MadamZuzus.com to pre-order today. Free shipping in the USA. Three-unit limit for order. Pre-order will ship after April 21st, 2023. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the 33 Podcast. William Patrick Corgan here. Eternally aggrieved with whatever plague I have in my body, but I'm so happy to talk to you as we premiere the song Empires. Back in the day, they might call this a little arabesque, if you want to look that word up. So this is a little arabesque from the Smashing Pumpkins. Jeff would know better than I. Is it Mixolydian or Phrygian? I'm not sure what scale we're using, but uh, pulling the funny notes here. Please enjoy Empires. Breaks and change 
Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to the world premiere of Empires. That song slaps. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Jeff Schroeder to the podcast. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, welcome. Yeah, I'm good. To be, happy to be here at very early in the morning. Jeff, do you know what slaps means? That's uh, I'm, I'm getting old. I don't, it slaps. It's, it's slaps. <laughs> that means it's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Never. I can't yeah. wait to hit <laughs> the gym. And be clanging and banging to that song, getting swole like <laughs> my buddy Kyle Davis. There you go. Oh, okay. So we'll get swole to it. Um, Jeff, thank you for being on the podcast. And thinking about what I wanted to ask you, I thought you uh, had a rare window to the struggle for the Smashing Pumpkins between 2006, which is kind of when you came into the camp, and present day. So it's 16 years now of watching uh, me in particular, but obviously JC was along for most of that ride. Uh, and of course, James came on board about five years ago. But the struggle of the band to assert itself as a new musical outfit in a market that continually tried to push the band towards an oldies act. Um, you have a very unique perspective on that because, of course, you saw the inside of it and then you saw the outside reaction. So if you want to kind of riff on that for a second, I think that's a good place where I'd want to jump in. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think that from an outsider's perspective, especially like the industry, they may have one kind of particular vision of the band. And then the internal vision is always maybe different than that. And so I think that maybe from the outside, they're like, Hey, you have this popular style of these collection of hit songs that have done well. Why don't you just keep on doing that? But I think the kind of the internal workings of the band has always kind of been about innovation, trying new things, putting a new spin on stuff. And so I think, Maybe it's always been about like, well, we're cognizant of how the world sees us, but we're also cognizant of how we work as kind of artists and musicians. And so trying to kind of find a balance in that, I think, has been really at the heart of the struggle to do something new, something that feels fresh, something that doesn't feel like we're doing the same thing. But then also kind of finding something that's still kind of relatable to the fan base. It's easy to make this point now because we have a hit song in the charts and Beguiled and Empires is coming. And there's even a station now playing Beyond the Veil, which is awesome. So um, there seems to be animation in the market, to use some industry uh, terminology, some animation. Uh, some The promoters are not as resistant as they were before. So it's easy to sort of telescope back and say, you know, oh, the struggle was worth it. But let's go back to uh, 2007. Uh, you freshly joined uh, the group. We're touring live. The Zeitgeist album has just come out. People don't understand how dark the album is. They, of course, put on me that I'd written this dark dystopic album that uh, I've said on this podcast wasn't dark enough. The future I predicted um, was actually kinder and gentler than the one we actually live in. But from the, from the standpoint of getting up on stage and playing new Smashing Pumpkins music starting in 2007, watching the radio stations, the program directors, the record company people, and of course the the various uh, managers that passed through the doors in the last 15 or 16 years. Uh, give your perspective starting around 2007, how you sort of saw it then. Well, I think that obviously it was very kind of overwhelming the whole situation for me personally, because, you know, I was a, you know, LA musician, you know, playing, and then all of a sudden you're joining a, a really big band where the expectations, the shows, everything's totally different. So there was kind of a lot for me to try to process but what I did, you know, understand is, you know, basically uh, on the Zeitgeist era of the tour is we were promoting a new record like you would have in the past. And so 
the set, the mindset, the look of the show, everything was kind of premised on this new vibe, this new era. And so we thought, great. And the band actually, when you see clips of the band playing from that time, band sounds amazing, awesome, like aggressive, like really good. But maybe already audience and managerial expectation and concert promoter expectation was, hey, kind of the era of like being a, a nostalgia or oldies act is is here and you need to start doing that. So we kind of met resistance from really from show one. It was never like, oh my God, like this is so great or wow, this is different. It was like, hey, why aren't you playing more of this or why is why is there so much new material in the set? Things have kind of felt like that. Yeah, I mean, I my memory, of course, I'd have to go back and look, but I'd say we were probably playing four to six new songs a night and that was f- three to five too many. Well, <laughs> I think it was more than that, but which is fine. But also some of them were songs like Gossamer, which we do open with like 20 minute new song that wasn't even on the record. I will admit to the challenge of that. Um, <laughs> it's good to, we laugh about it now because it's so funny. We opened yeah. with a 25 minute new song. I mean, why not? Yeah, Jack Bates, you know, our bass player was telling me the first time he saw the band was at Shepherd's Bush Empire on that first UK, the first European tour. And he said, yeah, you guys opened with Gossamer. And my brother just sitting there like, wow, this is like five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think, uh, and I, you know, you know me pretty well by now, but at the time, um, and I think you were aware of it because I know we talked about it. Um, I just dug in my heels. I was like, I'm not going out like that. Because as soon as I got the signal, oh, this is supposed to be Siamese Dream 2 starting in 2007, I was like, I'm not doing this. And the consistent rap with managers through the years, so if you want to trace a line from 2007 to 2022, I don't know how many managers we've gone through in that time, but it's been a few. Um, It's about four. About four, yeah. I've consistently said like, um, hey, you're never going to get me to be this other band that you want me to be. You can hint at it. You can poke me. You can sort of look at my bank account and say, you know, it'd be a lot fatter if you would just play along. And over and over again, I would tell whoever, I mean, some of the biggest names in the music business, I will never be that guy. Sorry, I'm just never going to be that guy. And they just didn't believe me. It was crazy. It was like it was like speaking English and you were speaking a different language. They would kind of nod their heads, their eyes would glaze over, and they think of, yeah, eventually you're going to come around to it or you're going to get booted out. Kyle, you have a question? Jeff, I've been talking to you a little bit before we started recording. You seem like the most down-to-earth human being I've ever met. When you first started playing with Billy, you're interjected into the Smashing Pumpkins. It's a different personality. I mean, today, you are literally with essentially the original lineup. You're like the addition that did there. You were adopted into the family and became a main part of the family. But when you first meet Billy, what's the thought going through your head? You join the Smashing Pumpkins, and here's this guy who, just as he said, digging his heels in, isn't playing by the rules that other people want him to. Well, you know, in like I said, everything is is looking at this in hindsight. And Billy and and Jimmy at the time, it wasn't. You know, when I joined the band, I think people think like, oh, what was it like? It wasn't like, hey, I come down at three p.m. to SIR Studios and learn these three songs, and then we'll tell you tomorrow if you got the gig. It was a relationship that was built actually over months. You know, and and so I got to really spend a lot of time with them in a very like intimate setting in that they would be like, I'd go jam with Jimmy and whatever bass player we were trying out, you know, that week. And then they would be like, Hey, come hang out in the studio. So I got to kind of watch them work in that space. And so it wasn't like a forced relationship. So by the time we actually got to playing, 
And I think the reason why they had me do that is so I was already in tune with the mindset of kind of what the band, what the expectations are, how the band works, how the band thinks from a creative side. So when we went in to start rehearsing for the tour, it didn't seem that jarring or shocking of as far as like what the expectations were. Now it was certainly tough for me to, to negotiate like, you know, playing on types of guitars and amps and stuff that I've never used in my life and, and being expected to play it at such a high level, you know, but it was great. I mean, I, I, I mean, it was, it was one of the best experiences of my life. The thing about working, you know, especially with Billy, is, is that there's no gray area. <laughs> you know, it's like if if it doesn't sound good, like you're going to know immediately. And, you know, and he may not remember this, but, you know, the first couple weeks of rehearsal was, like I said, it's just a lot. I mean, I feel like maybe the first day we walked in, there was like 70 or 80 songs on the potential list of songs that we might play on the Zeitgeist tour. And so we're whittling our way through that. And I was just kind of doing my best to get through everything and you know, I could tell he wasn't totally happy with all like the playing and stuff. And, you know, and I just, I remember we had a, like a really, like a very short heart to heart. I was just like, Hey, I know you're being hard on me. And I said, I want you to be hard on me because I want to be great too. And then once we realized like we're on the same page like that, I don't, I don't feel like we've ever had a hard time getting along like on a, on a musical level as far as like what we're trying to do. Um, And so I really have respected that from day one, because like I said, I got to view it as just, watching them in the studio working on that record. And then like the once we went into rehearsal, it was kind of the same kind of qualitative mindset. There's two things I want to try to unpack here because, you know, as I said, you, you have such a rare seat into how the band sort of operates. One, and I think you touched on it, and it's not something that occurs to me consciously, but hearing you say it, it sort of like bings in my head like a little bell, like ding. The standard of playing as far as the band is, particularly live, obviously on the records too, but the standard of playing that Jimmy and I hold ourselves to, and then by extension, you know, try to hold everybody around us to, you know, it's been much ballyhooed through the years. I I normally get the blame for that, but I, I think you would, it's safe to say that you would put JC in that camp too. I mean, our standards are pretty high. Jimmy's a better musician than I, and I think you would agree with that. I mean, Jimmy's just a supreme, ridiculous music, magi- music, magi- magician, musician. <laughs> yeah. He is a magician. Um, yeah. But can you speak a little bit to the to the, that, and then I want to follow up with one small thing. But uh, can you speak to that? What's that? That's like because I think people misinterpret that. It's I think it's an indie music problem ultimately. Like we always approach it like we're in rush and we got to play at the super high level. Indie musicians would always put on us like, and it, we even went back to when we were in Zwan. Like, why is everything so uptight? Can you kind of talk to that mindset? You know, it, it's funny because. I think that I was more like that. Like, well, you just show up, you play how you play, and obviously you want to sound good, but if it doesn't, whatever, you know. Um, but once I learned what the expectations were, I saw like, okay, it really becomes, it's more about a personal journey of, of us collectively. And then when you show up on stage, that's just a representation of what that the collective is kind of doing individually. So I'm like, okay. I got to become a better heavy rhythm player. I got to become a better lead player. I got to do all these, you start looking at all these deficiencies. So it's really about more, what are you doing off stage, you know, in your free time then. So when you show up for the next tour, for the next rehearsal, are you getting better? You know, and I think that we're all like that. Jimmy's always working on stuff. You're coming in, working on stuff. It's not even playing. It's like, we're working on sounds. Can we make the band sound better? We're like, what can we do? Can we... Do we have to switch guitars, amps to get a better sound out front? I mean, and it's not, 
it's really not ego driven other than why wouldn't you want to sound the best that you could? Why wouldn't you want to play? Why don't you like, I know I'll never be Richie Blackmore, but I should still try, you know, I should still try to become the best version of me as a guitar player that I can be. And, you know, it's funny. I think you use the word, which is, which is funny. You will never remember these things, but like, and I remember it was at um, the village recorder and, and you said, you just need to kind of hang out, watch, observe, and then you'll start picking up kind of the spirituality of the band, you know, and that to me is one of the kind of the, if, if there is like a, a spirituality to the band, that's kind of one of the core tenets is to really be the best musician that you can be because it ultimately serves the song at a higher level. The way that we play these songs, like on this last tour, even if you're playing simple parts, we play things with such a, a grace and confidence that even in 2007 that we couldn't. Well, that's the key, and I think you touched on it so beautifully, and you've you really stepped up to that challenge, and I think that's why you become so valuable you know, as part of our family, because, and I think the fans have responded to that too. The true fans of the band really understand your own journey too, and I think that's why they've yeah. taken you into their heart over time because they saw you take on that challenge. To that point, I, I, I think it's beautiful, and I, I don't remember saying that, but I, I love that you brought it up. It, it really is a spiritual journey. You know, you have, you have Jimmy always talks about his relationship uh, with his drums. He said his dr- relationship with his drums is the oldest relationship he has in his life because you know, his parents have passed away, right? So he looks at his drums as a relationship, and what, does, you know, what he gives is what he gets back. You know, to stand in Jimmy's shadow all these years, it's like, geez, I mean, I, I wish I could play like that. I mean, Jimmy's a, you know, like our good friend Sierra Swan. I mean, I call them one-take musicians. I can, you can literally put a microphone in front of them, and what comes out of their body in one take is enough to be on a recording. I don't feel like I'm generally that type of musician. I feel like it's always a process. The other thing I wanted to touch on, and, um, and I appreciate you, you delving into this, is, is this kind of constant, uh, and it just never seems to leave. And uh, of course, me bringing it back up is kind of the meta take on like, well, let's jump into the pool one more time. I, I do like to ask these questions of people who have the, you know, the insight in how the, how the band actually works. Even recently, there was a former uh, musician that I played with in the press, not necessarily negatively, but you know, the, the word dictator comes up again. You know, people start texting me, hey, do you see this and all this stuff? And I'm not saying, am I a dictator or not? I don't, I don't really care, honestly. <laughs> That's not the question. I think uh, it's more just to give you an open sort of softball forum of like, speak to how the band actually works as a musical unit, um, however you want. Because I, I, I think these are rare moments to talk about them candidly and openly. I'm at a point now, and I think you know this personally, that I, I don't feel there's anything to defend. I mean, I've I've established my process and my way of doing business, and it's been successful for over 30-something years. Not everybody likes it, but if you look at the people who are there, whether it's you, whether it's Katie Cole, whether it's Jack Bates, whether it's James E. High or Jimmy Chamberlain, I mean, we just had the most successful tour the band's had in over 25 years. So, I mean, you know, I, I'm watching the World Cup. I, it, it doesn't strike me that it's it's a nice business when you're out there and you're playing against the best players in the world. And sometimes people forget that. They get in this kind of kumbaya mode that everybody sits backstage and holds hands. No, you got to go out and convince 10,000 people or the 17,100 at the Hollywood Bowl that not only is the band still worth it, but at a 55, we actually, in my case, 55, we actually have something new to offer. And to get up on stage and play new songs, to, um, to continue to innovate, to continue to push the envelope, I think that's why people are still there. And I'll go to my grave saying it over and over again. But you... You have a perspective which is wholly your own. Of course, I just want to give you the opportunity to say whatever you want to say in that. You know, what, how I would answer that is kind of using the same rubric of, you know, there's a kind of a collective identity of the band and then the individuals within that collective. And certainly there's just 
no denying that, you know, you're the leader of the band and that's not even like the way it is, but it's like, you know, that's just, it's, it's kind of like, that's the, the territory of, of that you've entered and it's, and it's a beautiful thing, you know, but we all have our place in that, you know, in this, in the world that we live in, you know, to me, really what it, what makes me like when I'm really happy and have like a joy in going to work with, with that is going as a band, well, as an individual first, really a great artist, a great musician, you know, and whatever that role is to, to be one of the guitar players on the stage is, is to represent your uniqueness with joy and confidence. And really that's what people are paying to see. People go see the Smashing Pumpkins to get a unique experience that you can only get from the band, you know, that you can't go get from any other rock band on the planet. That's part of my individual journey to be like, wow, the more I really delve into myself and feel no fear, no negativity in terms of representing who I am, my musicianship, and not being afraid to delve into like what I'm not good at, what I'm good at, all these things. And then you take that into the collective where we're all kind of doing that. I think that's where the real power of, of the band is. When people see that, even if they don't understand it, like on a rational level, but when you witness it, like we've witnessed, have been in the audience and watched that, you're like, holy, you know, holy shit, that's that's what I'm here for. And I can't even, it's kind of beyond rational logic words or, you know, the expressible. Yeah, I think where people get lost sometimes, and um, if you if you don't agree, I mean, please say so, but my perspective is, and I've certainly had this conversation with Jimmy Chamberlain about 500 times, we feel like we're in service to this thing that we can't even identify. Like once it goes beyond, let's go, let's say, once it goes past the personal, right? Like uh, Jimmy played drums on this song and I wrote this song and we recorded it. After that, it really is, we're all in the same boat. We're all trying to figure out how to serve this. Me as a songwriter, I'm hard pressed to understand why Bullet with Butterfly Wings is 500 times more important than Blue Skies Bring Tears or something. I I'm lost in that. I mean, some of my greatest experience of playing with Smashing Pumpkins in the last 15 years are us playing Blue Skies Bring Tears on stage, not Bullet with Butterfly Wings. If it was up to me, I'd play those more of those songs more often. I'm hard-pressed once it gets past the personal to understand why it continues to be personal, because I know G- Jimmy feels this way, and I certainly feel this way. We're in service to this behemoth called the Smashing Pumpkins, and we're always in a negotiation not only with one another in the band and the musicians that make up the band at any given time, but then with the public and their interpretation of what it is, and it's, it's, a, it's a moving target, there is no fixed X, Y, Z on the Smashing Pumpkins. And if anybody remembers, at the end of the, at the, end of the tour in 2008, when you know, we came out with the casket and we were doing the kazoos, and, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, I was doing that rap against the carpenters close to you where I was saying, who is the Smashing Pumpkins? You know, are we the Smashing Pumpkins? Are you the Smashing Pumpkins? Who gets to decide? And I think in my sort of Andy Kaufman way at the time, I was dealing with the uncomfortability by being sort of a brat. But what I was really trying to say is, look, you can make this about me, but it's really not about me after this. Like, once the albums are in, it's, it ceases to be a personal thing. It's, it's more of a public negotiation. And we're all grappling with the public negotiation just as much as you are. Does that make sense, the way I'm putting that? Yeah, yeah, very much. Can you just speak to that just for a little bit? Just To me... I feel like we're always uh, often up against the public and the public may come in the guise of the fans that we're, we're, we're out there and, and you sense like, are we getting the energy back that we're giving or are we not? Or are people, when we play this song, are people leaving to go get a beer or, or you know, and coming back? Or sometimes that public comes in the guise of a promoter or manager who's like, well, you know, you know what I mean? But I really feel like 
that all that stuff. And, you know, and Jimmy, I think, would put it in this way, too, is being scared of that is really kind of like a, a fear based type of perspective. And, you know, maybe you called it digging your heels in or whatever. But I feel like it really comes down to the thing that is whenever we get on stage as the Smashing Pumpkins, which is different than you solo, Zwan or whatever, is there's a certain I don't want to say it's like a maybe it's a contrarian type of dynamic where we're like, we're never going to just accept a certain way of doing things. And so I, you know, if you really get into our world, you'll find that it's an inclusive world, but you have to kind of enter into our universe and kind of just enjoy it. But we, for then for us as the band, we have, we have to be confident in that. And if we're not clear on that, which sometimes we haven't been, then we fail. And that's our job to actually have the confidence to be like, we know who we are. We know what we're supposed to be doing, even if what we are is inexpressible, you know, that we're actually, you know, that we're somehow, I mean, I feel like that's God, right? Like we're somehow, we have times in our life we're in tune with a certain type of spirituality, even if we can't express what it is in, in kind of rational logic, rational terms. That's beautiful. You kind of know, but you kind of know when you right. When you have a really, truly personal spiritual moment, you know, you really feel like, presence or something like that right and i feel like as a band we're coming off this tour and we know we know we don't have to tell each other hey bill you, you know what you did a really good job up there we know you know i mean we know we played really good shows because we saw it we saw it, we felt it yeah i'd be remiss to uh, not ask you about the autumn album since that's basically what we're here to talk about so if you could give me a a synopsis sort of like uh when you first heard about this crazy concept record and then sort of what's been your experience in sort of grappling with it as not only playing on the record, but also now uh, translating it live. If my memory serves me correctly, I feel like we maybe started talking about this record actually before the pandemic started or right, right before. So I think, you know, it was like, okay, great, fine. You know, we're just kind of working on some, I think some demos pass some demos aside and then we'll figure out, are we going to, you know, cause we're all dispersed over the country, you know, over the country. Are we going to get together? How will we do that? We'll kind of figure that out once we get there. Then pandemic happens and we're like, all right, this is going to be like a different kind of, we're going to work on this basically remotely. So trying to wrap my head around, you know, and I think we had a, a bunch of zoom meetings and you, you explain the general narrative to us, but you know, I think it still was, hard to grasp you know what i mean like okay like how's this gonna i mean you can listen to it as a as a narrative but then like okay as a narrative within the music how does it work how does it um how does it feel and you know one of the interesting and i loved this because it was such a challenge because it's so different is that we worked in the album sequentially basically from day one you know intro and so i feel like because it was told in this way and it was Follow a certain narrative, you know, the trajectory of maybe an album, we worked on it differently in terms of like the energetic levels that kind of you'd go through. So that was an interesting kind of work dynamic. But then once you kind of went away for a while, if you remember, and so then, you know, I'm out here and I'm going to a studio to work on it and you get like, wow, here's 33 kind of first (laughs) versions of the song. It's a lot to sift through. And you're like, okay, you have a different relationship than me, than James with that music, because it's, you've kind of worked on it from the beginning, you know, giving birth to it. And so I'm kind of like getting a child that's like, you know, five years old, you know, you're like, have a, have a relationship with them, you know? (laughs) And so, um, and what you learn 
what for me as but then as a guitar player trying to be like okay let me come up with ideas is on a regular album you know you kind of want to bring some something new to your playing some kind of new perspective some new trick you got some new like oh, i'm going to try this this pedal this amp whatever this guitar and if for a a regular album that may work over a certain portion of it but when you have 33 songs you're like okay that gag's ran a course <laughs> you know and i got 22 more songs to kind of deal with it's you know it's very it was very 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 challenging yeah you know and it was one of the most challenging things to just come up with ideas for so many songs yeah i know i look yeah. back it's the uh it's the admonition if i knew how crazy it was i probably wouldn't have done it when i started but I convinced myself it wasn't that crazy. And then when it was done, I was like, wow, that was really crazy. <laughs> but that's kind of the whole, my whole experience with the band, you know, sort of just jumping yeah, off, yeah. getting into stuff that I, I can't, I mean, I look back, um, and this is a little sentimental, but I, I look back in Melancholy and I look at the 57 songs or whatever we cranked out in that two-year period. It just boggles my mind because I, I try to have specific memories of writing, I don't know, Mouths of Babes or something. And I, I have really faint, like little glimmers, like little, sparks of glass it's like uh i see me playing a riff somewhere and i could see jimmy with the mullet cut or something and that's all i remember like i don't remember writing the song i don't remember the lyrics i could yeah. probably tell you more about recording what became the released version than i can anything to do with writing the song why i wrote the song what i was thinking because everything was just like a big blur and i feel that way now a little bit with the autumn album even though it's not even that old and i think it's going to grow with time is it just kind of gets lost because it's just so much information and i guess i guess that's what i'm kind of sort of poking at it's like a four-hour bertolt brecht play or something there's something about being so immersed in something that's so overwhelming it sort of erases part of your normal ego stuff because you just can't hold on to it there's not enough identity to go around. Does that make sense the way I'm yeah, laying it out? Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny because we on this last time when we were playing Neophyte, you know, there was like a guitar line that, and then Katie did it vocally too that I did. And I couldn't, usually I can kind of remember how I played something. Like after a few minutes, you remember like, oh, there it is. And you find the position. And I couldn't remember. I just, the whole time, I could never, I figured out the notes, but it never felt like that was how I played it. And I know I was playing it technically wrong because whatever, when I came up with it, it was like 15 minute spurt of like, oh, that this is a cool idea. And you do it and then you just moved on to the next. And so I, I kind of know what that feels like where you're like, there's just no memory there of like no muscle memory, nothing. Yeah, because, it's kind of like being, being a yeah. robot with, a, with the wrong memory yeah. bank or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I get that sometimes and uh, yeah. I will get off it. But like, I'll go to play an old Smashing Pumpkins thing and I'm like, I know this is the wrong spot. I just know it, but I have no memory of why it's the wrong spot. My body just yeah. keeps saying wrong, wrong, wrong. But I'm like, but it's the right part. And it's like, no, there's something you're missing. It's usually like a drone note or the other guitar rang different 30 years ago. You get the sense memory, but you don't. It's it's a it's some Acura or whatever. You can never say that word, but it's like it's like a copy for which there's no original, you know? Simulacra. Thank you. See, I, Jeff went to college. I didn't. That's a, anyway, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I uh, Maybe maybe we could yeah. have you back one more time because there's so much more stuff I want to ask you. And we try to keep the shows under an hour-ish. So if you don't mind, maybe come back some other time to talk, to talk more. Because uh, you're such a great part of our world. And I love you so much as, as a brother and a friend. And so thank you for, I know you got up early today. So thanks, thanks, Jeff. Oh, it's a, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're listening to One and All. We'll be right back with 33 with William Patrick Corgan. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back, Smashing Pumpkins fans. You just listened to One and All off of Monuments to an Elegy. Incredible album, an incredible song, Billy. Why'd you pick it for this episode? Well, a couple things. One, uh, Jeff plays a lot on that record. And uh, what's cool about that Monuments record is I think I'm in the left channel and Jeff's in the right. So that's the only time I've ever done that where on the rhythm side, instead of me just doubling up myself, which is what people know as the pumpkin sound, Jeff and I decided to do this thing where he would play the right side, I would play the left. So you, you get a very uh, interesting representation of how me and Jeff play together as guitar players, and it's well-documented on the Monuments album. Um, also, that was an interesting time where Jeff and I were the only people in the band, at least as far as the current band that you would know. Jimmy wasn't in the band. We had Tommy Lee play drums on that album, which started a, as a kind of a... We were working in the studio on the record and started throwing out names. So that'd be funny if we got Tommy Lee to play on this song, which is one and all, because it kind of had a Motley Crue, kind of early Crue swagger. Next thing you know, I'm on the phone to Tommy Lee and Howard Willing and I are flying out to Los Angeles to record Tommy on the album, where Tommy got a uh, direct indoctrination in the prog rock meters and timing signatures of Smashing Pumpkins, where Tommy would just throw his hands up there, scream at the top of his lungs, saying, why has it got to be so hard? I was like, welcome to the pumpkins, bro. But uh, also, I think what's important about this song is, and I think it's a way to also pay tribute to Jeff, is... Jeff's been there. When Jeff joined the band in 2006-ish in the setup for Zeitgeist, Ginger Pooley was the bassist at the time, and Lisa Harrington was the keyboardist at the time. But, you know, Jeff's relationship with the band began then. But at the end of that touring cycle, which lasted about two years, it was very, very negative and fraught, not internally, but fraught publicly. A lot of people took out their knives, come at me one more time. You know, Jeff stood by me because when Jimmy left the band, uh, Jeff soldiered on uh, with me in the group. And so there were a lot of weird years there between 2009 and 2015, where it was basically Jeff and I sort of kind of running the band spiritually and internally. And what I mean by that is there'd be these situations with band members where band members would complain about any number of things, whether it would be a dressing room or their money or something like Jeff. And they would try to make it about me, which is, as we've talked about here, and as, as many people have seen publicly, it's the easiest thing in the world to make it about me. I'm the bad guy. But Jeff not only knows I'm not the bad guy, but Jeff also realized that that's not really the way the band works internally. You know, the real reality of the band is is actually much more supple, and I'm a much more sensitive person in the band than I play publicly. And I think Jeff was was kind enough to uh, defend me, not as some sort of acolyte, but to basically say, look, I don't think you know whose toes you're stepping on here, because why wouldn't Billy just roll up the red carpet and go home and go back to his nice house and hang out with Chloe or whatever, you know, people push me in these weird ways because they kind of come to this opinion that the pumpkins is sort of a fixed thing, that the pumpkins will never die and Billy will never stop trying to kill himself in the pumpkins, you know, that there is a possibility and and it has happened at different times where I'm just not going to be a pumpkin anymore. And I think Jeff was wise to not only defend me in that as a friend, but also help rebuild why the band mattered internally I know that's not an easy way to translate. In essence, he gave me confidence that I needed internally to rebuild the band properly as a musical unit, which opened the door to Jimmy coming back and ultimately James. If you want to point at one person who was the most critical person in those exchanges, not because Jimmy came back or James came back, in essence, what set the band up properly internally so that we could have a healthy culture internally, again, probably for the first time since the 90s, that's all Jeff. 
I think that's super impressive. And that's one hell of a compliment on there. And I, I mean, no disrespect when I say it, but there is kind of like an era of the dark years of pumpkins where the initial nineties fan base might've fallen out of it. And then now you're having this massive resurgence. You've got the new album out and everything. You've been there for the entire trip, but having somebody come in and kind of being the gap that bridges the past to the present, like he did, uh, is that still weird to you looking back now to say like, basically you two carried the torch and now all of a sudden everything's hitting a stride again. Just what's your take on that in retrospect, having somebody that now is one united band where essentially now two bands become one. Well, I think one of the most difficult things for a band, let's play a pretend game. Okay. Let's just make it about me and Jimmy for a second. Cause it's the easiest way to sort of thread the needle. Jimmy and I will never not be smashing pumpkins. The band can break up. I can quit. He can quit. We'll always be smashing pumpkins. And I think it's pretty safe to say that at this point in our lives, that's the thing we're most musically going to be known for. Even though we've done other things, and we will do other things. And there's still probably things that we haven't even dreamt of that we're going to do. But for the most part, most of the world recognizes us as smashing pumpkins. Once you've had that experience, in essence, you were a nobody, and I'm saying that kindly, and then you're somebody. You're the drummer in the Smashing Pumpkins. Hey, you're the rat in the cage guy. That's kind of part of your identity. And then that feedback loops into you. You become not only who you created. I'm Billy Corrigan on stage with this band called the Smashing Pumpkins. Who? I never heard of you. To, oh, I know you. My grandma likes you. To the feedback loop of, oh, I love your song, da-da-da. Jeff is an interesting case because Jeff saw the band, I think, for the first time in 1994 in Lollapalooza. And I think he saw the band three or four times. I'm probably saying it wrong because there's a, another gig he tell, tells me about where he saw us, I think, in San Diego or something. Circa 94. So Jeff had the experience of being in the audience as a fan and as a guitar player and experiencing what he liked and what he appreciated about the band, the original band, all four original members. He saw that lineup three or four times. Fast forward to 2006. Now he's hanging out with us in the studio. It's just Jimmy Chamberlain and I. And, um, you know, we keep we keep it pretty loose in there. You know, we just silly and we tell a lot of jokes because all we do is work. So it's drum takes and guitar takes and guitar talk and then it's jokes and then boom. we do. And so Jeff's around that atmosphere. Now Jeff's in the band. Now Jeff's in the hothouse atmosphere of now he's suddenly being treated like, well, you ain't the other guy, meaning James Eha, right? Then you have the whole racist thing of people assuming that he's been put there because he's Asian. You want to talk about racist, okay? You want to talk about high-level racism. That's some high-level racism, okay? So he's got to navigate people putting stuff on him for stuff that he doesn't have anything to do with. He's just Jeff Schroeder, right? He's just a good guitar player from Los Angeles who's joined the Smashing Pumpkins. He navigates that. He sees us play 25-minute versions of Pink Floyd songs, and then he sees the crowd go crazy when we play Cherub Rock or something. He's having his own experience now internally of what it feels like to play these songs, where it works, where it doesn't work. He sees me, who he doesn't even barely know, he's only maybe six months a year. He sees me digging in my heels and talking backstage. I will never go down, you know, I'm going to fight this whole thing. He sees me do all this crazy stuff. He sees the press, he's got fans in his ear, he's got hipsters in his ear. And he says, you know what, I'm going to stick with this even after Jimmy Chamberlain leaves the band. Now it's just me and Jeff sort of in these years of 2009, 2015. And it gets really blurry in there. There's all sorts of weirdnesses. It's not even worth repeating. So, but just to tell the story about Jeff. So circa 2012, when things started to get really kind of hazy, there were glimmers of hope. We made an album called Oceania, 
with Nicole Fiorentino and, and Mike Byrne on drums. A really, really good album that we've talked about on here. Jeff was very involved in that record. And Jeff was standing behind me as a friend, right, saying, you can do this. I know you can do this. And he gave me confidence that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise had in the situation. And I'm not saying it was all roses and unicorns. You know, there were scrumpy days too. But the point is, is we made a good record. The band started to get some traction with just me as the original member. And then we started having issues with the other band members. And I'm not here to talk stuff about that because it's not the appropriate venue for that at the moment. But Jeff was the delineating point even in that relationship of saying, hey, what Billy Corgan wants to do here and what he's created is more valuable to me, Jeff Schroeder, than what you think, you other two people. It wasn't that he stood with me and said, Billy's smart and you're dumb. It was like, look, Billy's vision here is something I believe in. Your vision is not something I agree with. So that starts to set up me really digging in my heels, which is like, if this thing's going to continue, it's going to continue at a high level of integrity. And I started to really grapple with what it meant to be in the Smashing Pumpkins after 25 years or 30 years. What he referred to earlier as not being afraid. I was like, okay, bring on the Smashing Pumpkins. Bring on the ghost of the Smashing Pumpkins. Bring it all on. If it kills me, it kills me. I don't care. I'm over it. And I went on Howard Stern after we released the Monuments to an Elegy album with Tommy Lee playing drums and Jeff on guitar, and it's just me playing bass. It's basically, it's three people on the album. And I told Howard Stern, I made the album that people think they want from me because I'm done. I'm promoting a new album. And I literally said, I'm done. And I was done. My brain was cooked. We tried to make another album just after that called Day for Night. I wrote a bunch of songs, maybe 10, 15 ideas. It was going to be very electronic, basically Sear before Sear. And I lost my mind after six weeks. I took Howard and Jeff out to a restaurant near Highland Park because I, I said, I'm done. I can't do this. I, I was like, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. And I explained all my reasons in a very calm lunch. And at the end of the day, because they're both my good friends, Howard and Jeff said, you're making the right decision for you. If it means the band's done, great, but you're making the right decision. See, this is why you need people like Jeff in your life. High-based integrity people who are willing to stand by you if it's the best thing for you, not if it's the best thing for them. And that's what I was trying to allude to before is the band works better when everybody realizes it's not the Billy Corgan rock show. Yes, Billy writes the songs, and oftentimes Billy has the crazy vision of melancholy or autumn. But once it's out of my hands past that point, it is not the Billy Corgan show. It is the band show. The band that is out successfully touring right now is doing so because everybody's committed to the idea of what the Smashing Pumpkins means collectively. It's not a, not a cult up there. And that's where people get really, really lost in it. And if you look at the musicians who've been successful with me and the musicians who haven't been as successful with me, the musicians who've been successful with me said, I know you're insane, but there's something that you got that's worthy and I'm going to get in behind it. I'm going to help you the best I can. And if it works for me, great. And if it doesn't, I'll let you know. And Jeff is one of those people who's such a high integrity person that he's prioritized his playing, his energy, his relationship with the fans. He's gone out and built his own musical life outside the Smashing Pumpkins. I couldn't be more proud of him because that shows you he's just not this guy living in some shadow. And his ability to walk that crazy line from I was a fan in the audience, to I've been on stage with you, to I've disagreed with you, to I've agreed with you, to now we're all on the same page, and now he's into the 16th year of the journey. And finally, all that faith, and I would use the word faith, in me or in the band or in himself, now it's finally paid off. 
the band is finally the band that he knew it could be. But until he could prove it, I could prove it, Jimmy could prove it, James could prove it, and by extension, Jack and Katie, it's just a lot of hot talk. Just one aside, and then I'll get off it. Jeff has been there 500 times when these people come backstage or somebody from the past or somebody with good intentions, and they kind of give you the little speech where it's like, if you just do it this way, everything would be a lot better. You need a guy, right? A, a friend. You need a friend like a Jeff Schroeder who can hear that conversation and he doesn't start going, yeah, they kind of had some good points. They leave the room and Jeff goes, F them, F them. Because I know, and I'm paraphrasing for Jeff and I apologize, but Jeff's basically saying to me in his own way, what we have and what we rep is more important than anything they could ever manufacture. Because the organic aspect of it is the magical part. All that other stuff is for conferences and boardrooms and it's got nothing to do with us. To his credit, he's been proven right where I certainly, and I just told you a story, there's been about 15 times where I was like, I'm done. I cannot do this anymore. I cannot navigate the private, personal, shy, abused, bullied, uh, you know, broken, the real William Patrick Corgan, not the fake avatar. I cannot do this. And that's where a Jimmy or a Jeff or a James the people who've been in the bunker with you in the toughest moments of your life, whether you're writing Tonight Tonight or Blue Skies Bring Tears or One and All, who can give you that look or give you that confidence to say it's worth it. And I can't tell you why it's worth it. I can't be specific. And we can get into the ego thing. What you're doing and what you're sacrificing or what you're putting yourself through is worth it. It's like saying, and this is the way to end this podcast. It's like looking at a Christmas tree when you're a little kid. And when you're seven, what do you do? You run and find out which presents are yours. That's just what you do when you're seven, right? You, it's like you see 40 presents and you want to know which of the 40 are yours. Hopefully by the time you're 55, when you look at that tree lit up beautifully and you look at the presents, that's the picture. You don't care if there's no presents under the tree for you. The Smashing Pumpkins properly oriented, whether it's for one gig more or a thousand gigs more, it's about the picture. Who put the presents under the tree and who decorated it? it? It doesn't really matter. I mean, yeah, it does in some sort of quasi-reality way, but spiritually, and I, that's why he used that word and he, of course, referred it to me. It's really more of a spiritual endeavor. Do you, do you have faith that this weird idea that you have in a bedroom someday will matter to some kid on the other side of the planet? And then once you figure out it does, will you hold true to that? Or you, will you sell that out 5,000 times because it's easier for you? And let me say one other thing. Pick your favorite artist that's past 40-something. Look at their set list. Look at their new musical output. And ask yourself how many are actually in line with their original spiritual purpose and how many just at some point go, it's just so much easier to give the people what they want. Whether it's David Bowie or Lou Reed or Leonard Cohen. It's the journey of the artistry that has made this band worthy. Most of the punters, they'll focus on the hits. The fans know that's not the true story. And if we ever make the documentary I hope to make one day, or if we ever write the book that I hope to write, then hopefully that story can be told in more articulate terms than I've laid them out here. Well, I think this is a good start to that story and a good start to that conversation like we have on every episode. So I want to thank our fans for joining us. For 33 with William Patrick Corgan, if you also happen to be wrestling fans, the National Wrestling Alliance is having 
It's first ever live power if you're in the Knoxville area, the greater Knoxville area, January 31st. We're having a big wrestling show at the Knoxville Convention Center. Tickets will be available at nwatix.com. Isn't that right, Kyle? That is absolutely correct. And I was going to ask about the album cover for the single for one and all, the statue with the chains on the feet and the St. Joe or Street Joe. We didn't get to it. That's fine. As for Hear Us at 33, new episodes drop every Tuesday. Use the hashtag WPC33 spelled out. Follow Joe Galley on Instagram at Joe Galley, Twitter at Joe Galley News. I'm online as at Kyle Davis ATL. And most importantly, Billy Corgan, Twitter at Billy and Instagram at Billy Corgan. Stop by smashingpumpkins.com for merch. Also find out more information about the World is a Vampire Tour. Actually, just festival, but who knows? Maybe there's more dates. No spoilers. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it via iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, any podcast place. And if you're still not satiated, make sure you go over to WPC33.com. Continue the conversation, playlist, lyrics, and all sorts of other things podcast-related. Billy, final thought. Well, Kyle, I did take the photo on the cover of that album. So someday I'll take you by the hand and show you. What is it? No one knows. <sighs> I think there might be one fan who figured it out, but um, as to, as to this point, nobody knows. But I did take the photo. <laughs> Maybe we'll get answers on future episodes. Goodbye. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Goodbye. We'll see you next week. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.